Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is in a cafe in DeGraves Street in Melbourne with James Nokise. We sat over lemongrass tea and talked about why he avoided Australia for so many years, uh, Pacific Island history, the ins and outs of trench warfare, the pragmatism of injury, whether you, uh, whether you are performing with it or not, rights and responsibilities, whether women want to be construction workers and the problems with saying old white men are on too many boards or there are too many um, old white men on boards. So that was a really lovely conversation. I hope you enjoy listening to it. I very much enjoyed having it as I always enjoy talking to James, whether on microphone or not. He's a lovely conversationalist. So please do listen to that. Now I'm going to do a little bit of admin, which is, uh, so if you want to skip ahead, maybe three minutes, um, if you don't want to hear it, but I want to say thank you to everybody who came out to Melbourne. Uh, to Ethos, was it was such a fun show to do. It, it was such a struggle to get to a point where I was happy with it, and then it was so lovely to have really great audiences. It was full every night. Thank you, everybody who came. Thank you, everyone who took advantage of the two-for-one ticket offer, which is everyone who is a Patreon subscriber at any level can email me their ticket, and I will put another ticket on the door for you and uh, you can do that as many times as you want, really. I'm, I was just lovely to see some TCAST listeners in the audience, to see some Bugle listeners in the audience, and it made me feel very supported. I also did this trilogy, the trilogy of Savage, the Resistance and Empire, on Saturday with Ethos in the evening, so that was four separate hours of solo comedy of my, of my shows of the last four years, and... I had such a lovely time. It was incredible how many people came. It was incredible how how much you were laughing as much in the third hour as in the first. The answer to whether you can do that, four hours of solo comedy in a day, is almost, almost. I was very happy with Savage. It came out the way I wanted it to. The Resistance and Empire were much looser than I would have liked them but I'm hoping that in the post-production and the edit it will I'll be able to put them into that kind of narrative structure that feels satisfying and um, inevitable which is what I like from my shows and I'm hoping that that can be done it'll come out on the ABC we're doing editing now I'll stay tuned here for when that will be released but I'm hoping that it will be good. I will make sure that it is good so you can listen to that when it comes out. I've convinced them to put it out as... Uh, it'll be six half-hour episodes, but I've convinced them to put it out as one in one chunk, like a Netflix binge, so that you can listen to the whole story if you want to do that. Uh, I was happy... I was happy my, my father and my brother drove from Sydney 14 hours to come and support me. My dad watched all three shows. My brother can't handle watching me do comedy, but he came to support anyway, which I was very moved by. I was incredibly moved by that and by everybody who came. A, a remarkable number of people came to all three shows. Some people came to all four shows, which blows my mind. That's an incredible, it's an incredible thing to do. So... Uh, thank you very much if you are one of those people and thank you in advance if you want to download the podcast when it comes out. Speaking of new podcasts, I've also launched a comedy podcast because this is not funny nor is it meant to be, but uh, Troll Play on the ABC is coming out. It has come out. Episode one is already out. You can subscribe on iTunes or your podcast listening app of choice. It is a, it's, a, it's a podcast about 
places on the internet where people have lost perspective and it's a result of my having worked briefly as a stand-in on as a social media manager for a television show in Australia and it was horrendous. There was so much awful hate being spewed out from ordinary Australians to the hosts of the show and I, my job was to moderate and filter that content and it made me very sad it made me feel suspicious of the world every time I'd walk outside I'd see people on their phones and think oh are you are you making something hateful so I thought I have to turn this into something funny and I pitched it to Tom Wright at the ABC who used to produce the bugle and is now the head of podcasting at the ABC and he was happy to do that I got on board Cal Wilson who is just a delightfully positive and very funny person and Sammy Shah who is one of the only people I know who, when he gets trolled, is truly, honestly and genuinely delighted. I don't understand it, but I thought he was the perfect person to have on the podcast. So it's a, it's a two-part podcast. There are six episodes of it so far. So if you, if you listen and enjoy, please tell them to recommission it. But uh, the first half of, the, of each podcast is us talking about our favourite internet interactions of the week, either trolls or positive feedback. And then the second half is us talk, talking about an internet plug hole, an area of the internet that we didn't know anything about, that we didn't know existed, some obscure and niche interest, sometimes very rude, but uh, we, we sort of uncover that and unpack that and explore it. Some of the strangest places on the internet are extremely supportive and lovely. So do tune into that or subscribe to that or whatever you call it when you sign up to listen to a podcast because it's a lot of fun and it's nice to have something out there that isn't uh that isn't quite as serious if that's something you're interested in so enough of my blither i will let you get on with listening to the podcast oh i'm in sydney uh, next week with ethos then i'm in perth then i'm in london then i am in edinburgh with Ethos, I will also be doing a one-off of the trilogy in London and one-off of the trilogy in Edinburgh as well. So uh, if you're in either of those places and feel like you would like to see that, come. I will announce it here and also on my Patreon, obviously. If you want to support this podcast, Patreon is the uh, financial place you can do that. You can buy my merch, etc. on my website. You can also just tweet about the show, tell people about the show, leave a nice review, all of that stuff helps uh, with everything from ratings to my feeling of being supported by such a lovely group of listeners. Um, it makes me very happy. I was so happy to see people after the shows who said that they were TCAS listeners or Bugle listeners. It just, I don't, I, yeah, I'm, maybe I'm the only, the only performer who is starstruck by my own fan base. I don't know, listenership, people who like my work. It makes me very, uh, it gives me a real thrill. Now I will stop blithering and let you listen to the podcast with James Nokise. I will see you next week. You're having tea with Alice. Uh, Who are you and what are you drinking? Uh, My name is James Nokise and I am drinking a lemongrass tea today. Lemongrass tea, that's yeah. very nice, very crisp. Yeah, I've, I, I've learned to enjoy it. I don't think we do lemon, oh, we probably do lemongrass in New Zealand, but uh, I encountered it first in Australia, so it's just become my de jour when I'm yeah. over here. It's your Australian taste. Yes, the taste of Australia the is lemongrass tea. The taste of Australia is lemongrass tea. Yeah, it's great because there used to be racism, but now it's lemongrass tea. <laughs> I, I mean, how do you know what racism tastes like? 
Uh, just years of absorbing. See, I know what racism smells like. Ironically, I think it's bittersweet, like dark chocolate. So that's and that's going to annoy the racist. <laughs> <laughs> what is? Uh, what have you been wrestling with recently? What I've been wrestling with. Um, well, I'm I'm in a strange place. I'm I'm doing a Melbourne comedy festival for the first time. Mm. Uh, and Which is weird because you've been doing comedy for years and years. <laughs> yeah, I've never, I've never really. Do you know what? I, can, so I don't think I've told too many people this, but I avoided Australia. A lot of people think that I just, it was just chance, but I actively avoided Australia for years because I came here uh, with my mother uh, when I was a teenager, uh, my late teens. She was here for a work conference in Sydney, mm-hmm. and she flew me over to the weekend to go to the art gallery, um, and. Uh, I experienced um, a racial abuse from Australians, and I just went, well, screw this country and all its people. Um, wow. And so just for a good 10, 15 years, just went, you, there's no need for me to go to Australia. You say um, that you experienced racial abuse from Australians, so yeah. that means that more than one. Yeah, yeah, a couple of times. Um, and what a, and, form and a, did it take? Oh, verbal abuse. Um, and then also the more systemic, um, check your bags, looking in this. Um, and to be fair, I was coming out of my uh, thug phase uh, in New Zealand, but it was, just, it was just enough of concentrated over one weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know that's bad, letting one weekend's experience define your perception of a country. But the world was so big, and I had a British passport, and I, I'd grown up on American pop culture, that Australia held no interest for me to take part in. That's really interesting. And it was only actually after I began to really get into Pacific Island history mm. that I realized I needed to get over to Australia, and, and there was an unfinished chapter of that part. Of your knowledge of Pacific Island history? Yeah. Uh, and like Australia plays such an important role in, in both old uh, Pacific Island and um, contemporary Pacific Island history that uh, I felt like I was purposely blinding myself for no reason. And now I'm here for, is it, I've been doing Adelaide as well and that, so I've, I've been here for quite a while. What is your impression of it then, having avoided it for a long time? Do you think that the, the tone of racial... Uh, impression towards you has changed or oh, are you just more fortified against it or combination of both um, but but also I think Australia wrestles with it with its racism and it's so unwieldy that they they often use New Zealand's as not as an example of where to go but as an example of how they're not going to achieve it and it's very frustrating as a New Zealander because you want to go, no, we, we've got massive problems back home. You guys are doing good. Like you've got such huge things to wrestle with and you're moving forward and, and it's clunky. It's so clunky. Mm. I really struggle with how clunky it is, but I have to take a step back and go, but you are moving forward. It's just, and you're frustrated as a country. You can sense Australia's frustration as a country. But also, you just got to do it. It's like, um, it's just a country going through adolescence. You feel that way? Yeah. What would you say the big difference between Australia and New Zealand is? 
because I think in Australian discourse, the New Zealand model was set very early as a result of, and I'm, I'm not sure if this is true, this is the mm. received wisdom, mm. but it's set as a result of the Maori people being extremely uh, militarily adept mm. and having a similarly structured hierarchical system to the British people, which meant that they could recognise, you know, game recognises game, mm. that they could recognise the, the cultural mm. norms and it wasn't alien to them, so they, they felt like they could negotiate not necessarily as equals, but they could negotiate as as similars, I guess. Yeah, I mean, um, I'll, I'll qualify a couple of things by stating I'm, I'm not indigenous New Zealand, so I'm speaking from the point of view of a New Zealand-born um, mixed-race Pacific Island British person. Mm -hmm. Those are the perspectives I've grown up with in my household, um, surrounded by Maori culture, um, and interacting uh, with Maori culture. So with that in mind, um, I think it's, there's a couple of things to keep focused on, which is that the, uh, yes, the Maori are tribal, uh, mm. the Pacific is tribal, uh, and indigenous Australians are tribal. They're tribal, I mean, they're, they're different, differently structured exactly. tribal. And that's, and that's sort of very important to understand, is that Māori unified themselves into, like the modern Māori language, as I understand it, is quite different to the 1800s Māori language, but it was constructed almost on purpose. So different tribes had different names for different things, but they went, we got to have one unified language here for all of us, because these guys coming in have a unified language and they're gonna stomp all over uh, us we haven't got something to push back with. Because mm -hmm. um, the Maori language was almost lost. Uh, I don't think a lot of Australians realize that. It was active implementation uh, in schools. Um, this is a brilliant soundtrack for this kind yeah, of history lesson I as like well. that the volume's just gone up the moment we start talking. I, it's, it's actually my fault. I, I often, I, I, I said to them, look, I'm just going to go start talking about Māori oppression in New Zealand. Can you just play <laughs> some hard black exploitation music in the background while we talk, if that's all right? Um, but high schools in the 1940s, 1950s uh, w would beat up students who spoke in Tereo, the Māori language. They was physically beaten out of them. Um, and that's not very long ago. I mean, yeah, that, is, that was one of the MOs of the British Empire. They did that in Ireland. They've yeah. done that in yeah, yeah. many and different Scotland, places. Scotland, as we Scotland. learned famously in Braveheart. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's one of those things where the, the Māori people, yes, they, they adapt, but there's a concept uh, called tangata whenua, which is the people of the land, and the people are the land. Mm. So I, I think a lot of people don't realize that trench warfare uh, which the Māori invented with their pass system to fight the, uh, like, not to fight the British, but it was their style, came from that understanding of the people uh, and the land work together, like, yeah. symbiotically. Well, that's a really interesting thing, trench warfare, which was implemented in Europe in World War One yeah. by the British, yeah. was not implemented in the Civil War in America. Mm. Although technology, I mean, obviously the Civil War was before World War II significantly, yeah. but that they had that advance in weaponry, yeah. but that they didn't have a corollary trench warfare. But you he, see the fields trench. of battle in Civil War America. Yeah. It's all just people strewn over flat yeah, and, surfaces. Uh, the Brits, I always, always joke that um, it was British pride more than anything else that, that got people killed in World War I because the genius of trench warfare 
military-wise is the escape tunnels. The whole system is designed so that a smaller force can hold off a larger force and then escape. And you, you lose, um, if you're attacking trenches, you lose people more and more each trench while the same force can hold off and retreat and eventually escape the whole system. So the pass system is designed, you hold, you hold, and if you can't hold, then there's a final escape tunnels, so you leave. So often the British were, were reporting victories over Māori because they were showing up after these massive long, day-long fights to empty um, empty fort- trenches. Empty fortresses. And go, the well, idea we've done of a retreat as them. defeat. Yeah, and the idea of, of guerrilla warfare, Again, people and the land are one. The idea that the fortress is not the base, the land is the base. Mm-hmm. The fortress is simply a fort. Yes. You know, and I, no particular piece of land is the base. No, either. the river is the base. The mountain is the base. Everywhere is the base. Uh, as the British were like, clear the land, put the house on it. This is the place. Yeah. And the Maori were like, no, th- this everywhere is the place. Yeah. And so it's that fundamental difference in mentality. I uh, used to, uh, there were kings, um, uh, queens, uh, hierarchies, there's kings and queens throughout the Pacific. Um, uh, the Tongans had a similar interaction, I think, with the British. And in fact, the Tongan kings and queens, I believe, go and study at Oxford, um, often have quite upper class British accents, which is Malo Elele. Well, they don't talk like that, they go Malo Elele, and then they switch when they speak that, hello, how are you? Welcome to Tonga. Well, I, um, when I went to Cambridge, I went to my doctor to get, you know, immunizations for going overseas. Mm. And my doctor said, oh, I'll give you the full spectrum of, like, exotic disease immunizations. Mm. And I was like, why? She's like, there's all these people from all over the world, and you might want to bang them. Right. <laughs> I mean, and that's the kind of enlightened... Family doctor. Family education. doctor. Yeah, yeah. That's good. You need a good family doctor. She's like, you've got to be careful. If you fall in love with someone over there, you need to yeah. know what their relationship with their family is. Are they going to want to go home? Oh. Are they going to want to live with you? And if they want to live with you, what have they got problems with their family? That's great. It's like, thanks, Doc. Yeah. You can't trust anyone. <laughs> but you can bang them. Yeah. That's great. Well, well played, Doc. Well played. I remember when I moved back from the, um, from the UK, <laughs> I went to my doctor because I was having anxiety attacks. And he's been my family doctor for 20 years. He's retired now. And uh, he just listened to my symptoms and he took all my vitals. And he went, so how many weeks since you've had some coke? I was like, oh, about uh, five. And he went, yeah, you're going through withdrawal. You're fine. <laughs> you're going to be fine. What's happened is, and he just walked me through the chemical imbalance in my brain. He's <laughs> like, this is what happens. This is the amount of thing you've burned out. Uh, you're going to be fine. And we have that kind of relationship. Wow. There's no medical insurance in our profession. Yeah. So your doctor's basically your mechanic. Yeah. And you, know, you, you got to be able to run. Yeah. yeah, you have to be able to work. I remember that when I was uh, running, literally running, mm. um, there was a, the squad physio um, or osteopath, mm. Chris Jones, who's an excellent osteopath. If you're in Sydney, you should go see him. Uh, but he would say, you'd come to him with a niggle or an injury, mm. and he'd say, you know, obviously you should rest this for however long Mm. but the first thing he would say is are you going to keep training or not and if you if you said yeah because I've got a race coming up I can't stop training he would give you a program that was like well obviously you shouldn't be running on it at all but since you're going to be running on it this is what you do that I like that sort of the pragmatism of that of 
stop. In the best of all possible worlds, you'd be sitting with your foot up, but I know you're addicted to adrenaline and to endorphins, and so you're going to run, so let's make this as least bad as it possibly can be. Because yeah. I, I think that's what my doctor was always good at. I remember dislocating my knee, uh, and I'm going, all right, you've got to go to physio. He's like, now physio's going to take five months. I was like, five months? He went, well, it would take like two months, but you're going on tour. <laughs> um, so I managed to wrangle me some circus crutches because they're light. Amazing. Uh, which was great because I still had to go on plane, take the crutches on the plane. And I was, I was literally for five months going on stage with crutches, putting my crutches to the side and then doing stand-up on one leg, hopping about. And sometimes for like 40 minutes, sometimes I was doing full hour shows on one leg because I just, my body my muscle memory didn't know how to perform with crutches. And I tried a couple of times and it was too hard. And I found it's it was- too unwieldy. It was easier for me to balance on one leg for an hour than to try and do five minutes of stand-up with circus crutches. That's amazing. <laughs> it's good, you, you learn about your core strength thing. Yes, gosh, I mean, I can't, I, I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff that says that standing on one leg is very healthy for you. Oh, is it? I think, I think people just, sometimes I worry people, I get paid way too much for these studies. Well, yeah, also most, most genuinely the majority of studies are not replicable. Like in science, yeah. of all published science, yeah. 60% can't be replicated. Yeah, amazing. Which means, you know, you've got to take everything with a, a grain of salt. Or maybe you shouldn't because I don't know if salt is healthy oh, for God. you. Who, who can tell at this point? <laughs> I mean, I think a fair swathe of the unreplicable uh, studies are in the social sciences uh, sort right. of psych, neuroscience stuff where they do the things about like, oh, if you hold a cup, you feel friendlier, mm. you know, that kind of thing where, you know, it's just sample sizes and, you know, they, they need to have results. They need to pull results out of somewhere. Well, I'm, I think I've always saying, I mean, if you, if you grow up, again, this is the way that systemic racism works. I think if you grow up in society where people treat you inferior because science, some studies come out, which yeah. you know is, is bull, yeah. but which people are using as an example, then you always end up treating science. And this is the irony, I think, of a lot of, of things going on, is that I think a lot of Western people go, well, why... Why, why are these people not embracing the science and the science? And it's like, well, you kind of turned up 100 years ago with science yeah, and used it to oppress them. Uh, yeah, well, the scientific methodology, I think, is a very valuable way to approach the world yeah. as an analytical approach. But you have to remember that science gave us things like the thalidomide kids and yeah. uh, the idea that if women ran marathons, their wombs would fall out yeah. and the, you know... Science is a is a process yeah. that and, you can't and by, necessarily. Um, but on the flip side, uh, people go, "Well, how come all these people are into religion?" As like, because you showed up a couple of hundred years ago with Jesus and taught them how to read and taught them maths, and you gave them Jesus as a path to betterment. Yeah. And and education. Uh, and uh, well, having a house. Well, made those things contingent on one another. There was only the church that was giving education, the only the church that was giving often medicine yeah. uh, in, in that environment. Yeah, so it's And also like, taking away your traditional medicine. Yeah, and you, it's like you suppressed 
and indoctrinated people like with uh, science which turned out to be false uh, and with Jesus which was seen as a pathway to enlightenment and, and more wealth and then to have the same people or their descendants turn around and go you know why are people why why uh, let's take Israel Falau now he's the uh, rugby player um, or AFL player who in the past week uh, decided that for Easter he was going to answer the question uh, that someone put to him what is God's plan for gay people by saying hell uh, unless they repent their sins okay uh, that's against the rules of Australian rugby um it's probably against the rules of common sense. Uh, it's a really dumb and insensitive thing to say if you are a representative rugby player in the national team for a country that's just gone through a plebiscite. Yeah. Uh, you got the numbers on how many people disagree with you, mate. Yeah. But, like, and I think he's an idiot, and I've said so publicly, and was saying so in my show before he did this. So, thank you, Israel. It's good timing. Um, I may be the only person that looks like me that ever says that. But I understand how he got there. Yeah. Because I grew up in the Pacific Island Church. And I grew up with very liberal uh, ministers in my family. But I know the attitudes. And the joke I tell in my show is that the difference between aunties and uncles who were saying that those kind of things is that they would say it after a few beers in the family garage, not on international television. And it's not just like, people are slamming him, but he's got politicians who back him up. Because it's not like he's just thrown it out, out of nowhere. It's not mm. like this rhetoric isn't being out of nowhere. But people come at him and say, well, he's a dumb Pacific Islander, or he comes from the, the church and that. It's like, he's, I'm, I'm not saying he's a smart man, I am saying he comes from the church, and that church that he, particularly that church he comes from, is very homophobic. But let's not pretend that there isn't a precedent in Australia for that rhetoric to be in the public domain. Yeah. It doesn't mean he shouldn't be saying it, but if he gets more heat than politicians who voted against gay marriage, that seems a bit weird, especially when they felt it. Like, he's the, he's the most recent person to say it. Yes. Uh, it's a dis disproportionately um, aggressive response on the one person who has come out of a large number of people who are saying the same thing. Yeah, that's it. He's an idiot. Um, and yeah, I never know. This is one of the things that I'm wrestling with at the moment, of, like, what is the correct level? I mean, we can't really unionise... Twitter and say, you know, three days of loathsome hate tweets if somebody says something homophobic. You know, we can't say the amount of punishment that someone deserves out, like, outside of the court system. We don't have that, mm. that kind of social regulation is kind of being done at random. If you're, if the people, if your hate speech has a good PR campaign, mm you are more impacted than if somebody has just quietly said it to a hundred followers something as loathsome or more loathsome well I think it's I, I engage these things 
sometimes on a theological level mm-hmm. um, because of, of as a preacher's son as a preacher's son as but also as the preacher's grandson preacher's nephew uh, son of a theological academic someone who took religious papers in university and I think what people who are like or oh, how upset should we be I think you have to also understand that if this man is a very believing Christian then burn in hell is actually a very big deal like burn in hell is a, is a phrase that we throw away in pop culture but if he believes in hell then what he's advocating is eternal uh, and even eternal is a difficult word because it's in pop culture and it just means I'll oh, live forever but you've got to actually deconstruct what he's saying here what he's saying is constant unstopping physical pain to mm. gay people and he's saying that that is correct and it is righteous. And that's really what that sentence, God's plan for gay people is to burn in hell. If you are, if you are a true, like, righteous, believing, evangelical Christian, that's the mentality it's coming from. Yeah, but it's also coming, I think, not to excuse what he said, mm. but he's not saying that he thinks that they should. No, no, he thinks he's that saying they, he thinks that they, they will. will. And in some ways, I think that's... I mean, that's harder mentality. Yeah. Because he doesn't understand how hurtful that is. Because yeah. he's talking about it as a fact. Yes. In the same way, to make an analogy earlier, to somebody coming in from a scientific background and saying, your people have smaller brains. Yeah. And you are less evolved. Yeah. And that's a fact that they believe according to the information they've been given. Yeah. They're not saying it in a hurtful way. They believe it to be true. Yeah. But as a person, you know, as a, as a woman with a smaller brain or yeah. as a woman who's not allowed to run a marathon because my womb will fall out, I go... I'm so sorry. I'm so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've run two marathons, still got a womb, but right. uh, it probably means I'm an unnatural woman. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, do we burn you? Is that what happens? Yeah. yeah. So you've got, you've got the choice of going, well, maybe that's true and I'm an outlier, maybe that's true, what do I do with that information? And maybe it's not true, in which case, what else isn't true? Mm. I think, I mean, I grew up in a, in a family where, um, you know, my, my mother um, would try to kill herself because my, my father bet her so much. So uh, the idea that the minister was sacred and holy was eviscerated um, before my eyes. And so my father's always called me a, a questioning Christian. And that I'm, I'm, I'm a man of faith and I don't shy away from that. But I'm not a man of doctrine. And, and I never will be. I think there is something. Uh, I'm not agnostic. But I'm also prepared to admit that I'm insane. Um, <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm comfortable with that because I, I'm a great believer in mental safe spaces. And perhaps because of the way I was brought up, my safe space has formulated itself in this particular manner. Um, I always say it doesn't really, you can be a, a, a satanic person if, if believing in, in you know, following the path of Satan makes you a really generous and nice human being, more power to Lord Satan. You know, it's kind of, <laughs> I'll say that. You know. but it's, 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 That's the quote for this podcast, by the way. More power to Lord Satan. It's your next show title. <laughs> Lemongrass tea and Satan. And, um, and, this is, and this is how they get deep see, and there'll be people listening to this going, I knew it, I knew that he was really one of the evil ones, like, okay, okay chill out but it's, you know this, this idea that everything has to be set 
it, it flies in the face of what faith is meant to be. Yeah. I think that's what always, you know, people go, well, obviously gay people will burn in hell and that's a fact. That can't be a fact. That's not the way that faith works. Yeah. You know, otherwise, uh, these people who are prepared to constantly throw people of, of different uh, sexualities uh, or different genders under the bus, you know, like, my parents are divorced. So, so technically, uh, you know, I, I should have lost my mum when I was five because uh, she should have been stoned to death. Uh, that's not me. That's the Bible. Yeah. Um, but you know, that was uh, an impassioned tea spill. Yeah. Well, we figured we figured that out. Let's figure that. What is it? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's just cried really like tears. But we figured out that that might not be actually the correct response. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting phenomenon. The idea that everyone is a sinner. Yeah. According to that religion, so no yeah. one is. It's, it's the reason why lapsed Catholics tend to go so wild, because you might as well be hung for a sheep as a goat. If you're going to hell for stealing a biscuit, you might as well yeah. do some coke while you're at it. Oh, that's, okay. that's all right. I mean, a clock, actually. A clock. Um, you know, there needs to be different levels of hell. Are there? I think there's like seven or eight. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, he says, uh, wiping up spilt tea. Um, I mean, well, because people's modern framing of hell is Dante's framing of hell. Yeah. So even then, it's like, it's, your concept of hell is based on pop culture interpretation of an Italian poet. Like. And never trust a poet. Never, oh, never trust a poet. <laughs> Unless he's a satanic poet. Then In he's probably case. doing the Lord's work. But it's, it's all, you know, again, this is what faith it's meant to be fluid and, and ethereal almost. And people talking in hard, rigid, this is the truth, this is in the book. It makes, like, it makes no sense, but what those people are, are often searching for is some sort of empowerment and, and validation. Like, I guarantee you that someone like Israel Falau, he doesn't go into the church every weekend going, all right, we're going to screw over gay people. That's what we're going to do. He probably goes there to have, feel a sense of empowerment, a sense of, of, of purpose, which he probably uses to fuel himself doing his rugby playing really well at a high level. You know, maybe it's, it's faith helps him push through the same, uh, the pain barrier to, to run so his womb doesn't fall out. And that's... <laughs> and, uh, but he doesn't seem to be able... To, to see that he can have that without the persecution. It's almost like they see, like I guarantee you, Israel Folau doesn't want to beat up gay people. Uh, but he doesn't seem to be able to, and a lot of people don't seem to be able to disassociate the punishment of other people from the empowerment of themselves. Yeah. So and I mean, even people on the far left don't seem to be able to do that. It's a very human yes. thing of saying, well, I have these principles, I believe these things. Other people who don't believe these things need to be hurt and punished. Because it's not other people who don't believe these things need to be persuaded. Hmm. Because if, if you want to persuade people, you're going about it in the wrong way. I've never changed someone's mind by calling them nasty names. Yeah. So, you know, or telling them that they deserve to be, you know, beaten up and have their, mm. you know, family stuff. You know, I've never, I've never convinced anyone of that. Yeah. 
in a in a shop in an argument in a oh I thought this was two dollars fifty yeah it's actually five dollars go burn in hell like I've never convinced anyone of that. So it's not the urge to change someone's mind that brings this anger. It's the urge to punish them. And, and often that comes from uh, people wanting to, um, to lash out because they've been hurt. I think sometimes a lot of... I remember International Women's Day, there were people going on um, about men's rights. Men's rights is a particularly fun thing because they act like they're in a competition. I think that's very, very funny right? because it's normally... Um, a lot of a lot of men, uh, normally of Caucasian persuasion, are normally from imperial backgrounds. By which I mean they are citizens of uh, a colonizing country, so the United States, um, of, of Britain, um, and, and they'll go on and say the, there's a war going on, uh, and we've got to win. We, you know, we're under it. We've got to win. And it's like, no, you already won. Like you already want, like the war was quick and it was violent and you won. And this is, we, this is post-war. Like what you are perceiving as a, as a battle is, is someone, you think someone's trying to get on your island and take your land. What you're actually seeing is someone trying to keep their head above water. Mm. But they, 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 and so they lash out because they're hurt and they don't know how to talk. Well, and injustices exist. There are things that happen to men disproportionately to women. You know, there, there are men who are, you know, in more dirty and dangerous jobs if you don't count things like sex work and uh, dying in childbirth. Yeah. So you have, you have more men dying in dirty and dangerous jobs. You have men who are feeling disempowered, they feel like their masculinity is being taken away, and it is to a certain extent, because the things that traditionally made men powerful, which is physical strength, I, I are would, being I valued. I would disagree with that. I would disagree. I don't think the Less? masculinity is being taken away. I think that the masculinity was an illusion. Uh. I think the masculinity, this idea of hyper-masculinity, of the, of the Superman, uh, was a, uh, an illusion which was used like Jesus. Mm. You know, it, it, it is an idea... To inspire people. To, in, to inspire, but also to give them a false sense of bravado. I think if you're told that you're the man and you're not, you're a cog for someone else to be the man. If you think you're Henry Ford, because you dress like Henry Ford, but you're dressing like Henry Ford to work in Henry Ford's factory, you're not Henry Ford. Yeah. And I think what's happening as we grow more intelligent as society, because contrary to popular belief, we are in fact getting more intellectual. Even as we rally against intellectualism, we cannot help but accure more knowledge. The internet spreads it further. We are getting smarter. As we get smarter, we come to understand more about ourselves. We understand that Superman is a fantasy. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. I think one of the things that is mainly missing from the rights discourse is the responsibilities discourse. Yeah. As we people who have traditionally not been the owners of the world Mm. get more ownership of the world, Mm. we need to have a sense of responsibility for others. Yeah. But also there's... The responsibility goes both ways. So it's like uh, men 
uh, uh, you know, more, more men are uh, involved in uh, these things, more, more men die in these jobs, more men, yeah, more men work in those jobs. Yeah. Because men work in all the jobs. Yeah. You know. It's well, like, I mean, one of the arguments I've heard regularly, and yeah. I think is a decent argument, is there's no women who are fighting to be garbage collectors or construction workers. Women are fighting to be on boards and so on and so forth. Now, I see some flaws in that argument. What would you say to that argument? There are women who want to be construction workers, uh, and they are slowly becoming construction workers. Construction work site, I say this as a former construction worker. It's not necessarily the safest uh, place for women to be after work drinks. I think you'll find it can be quite a safe place. Uh, and I am completely open to being corrected on this because I have not worked as a woman in a construction site, only as a man. Um, but during the, during the nine to five hours, moderately safe, uh, comparatively. But also, we, uh, women fighting to be on boards. There was a thing in New Zealand uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, and the Minister for Women, she came out and said that we need to have less old white men on boards. We need to make more diversity. And the old white men took this as an attack. Mm. Um, some of them, not all of them. There wasn't a blanket statement from old white men of New Zealand. Yep. Some of the, some of them came forth uh, and, and and said this is both racism, it is ageism, and she was like, no, the the demographs. The Minister of Women actually came and said the demographs disproportionately favour men at this age, and at and they were like, would that no one know? And and then suddenly. Instead of being in a debate over why the diversity was a problem, it became a debate over age and ethnicity, which they were like, what's the Minister of Women's Ball for saying? She said the words old and white. It's like, no, bro, you're in the job. Yeah. Like, the reason that the diversity is an issue is because there's too many old white men in the job. Well, that's not our fault. Actually, it is your fault because you cannot have it both ways. You cannot have all of the power for almost all of the time, and then when that power is questioned, turn around and say, it's a goddamn mystery. Yeah. Because it's not a mystery. Your ancestors colonized the world. Yeah. That's a fact yeah, that we learn in school. Fault. It's not necessarily, well, it's not necessarily your fault unless perhaps your last name is Ford. <laughs> but it is, like, it's not your fault, but you can't pretend you don't benefit from it. And you can't pretend that the system that we live in has not been specifically designed in generations past to produce a generation of men in their senior years of Caucasian ethnicity to be running boards because we are still in the changing, we're still in the generation of change. Mm. So of course there's gonna be on boards a whole bunch. Yeah. To then turn around and treat the identifying of that as an inhibitor to diversity as an attack seems disingenuous to, to wanting to advocate change. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, that totally does make sense. I think it's a... It is a we, we live in interesting times, James Nokise. Uh, and uh, where can people find you online and in the world? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, uh, at James Nokise, N-O-K-I-S-E. Uh, and on Facebook at, at James Akise and on Instagram at James Akise and I am in Melbourne for the next how many weeks how many weeks have we got three weeks I'm in Melbourne for three weeks this is the longest period I've ever been in Melbourne uh, at the Forum 
at, at 7.15 each night, and then I'll be in Sydney at some place at some time, uh, and then I'll be in New Zealand for a couple of weeks because I like to go home and, and, and punch old white men and Christians too. I'm always attacking them. I was about to say, is there anything that you wanna, uh, want me to edit out or that you want to back off from or that you want to say more strongly? Uh, but you've just doubled down I, I on think, the bashing I think, I think old white I think, man. I just old, <laughs> old white man. I like when people, I, I, you know, occasionally I had someone say once I got off stage and they, and they meant it too, which was really funny. It was a comedian in New Zealand. And he was like, wow, you just hate white people, don't you? You hate white people. And I went, like my mum. And it was really interesting because when I, when I critique, I critique as someone who is Caucasian. Yeah. But people only see the pigmentation in my skin and hear that I'm mixed Samoan. And they forget that I'm mixed Welsh. They forget I'm a British citizen. I, I am a taxpayer of Her Majesty's government. I am the colonizer as well as the colonized. Yeah, I'm, I'm the nightmare, mate. You're both. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, look James Nokise up online. Thank you so much for having tea with me. Oh, I really enjoyed this chat. Cheers.